I encourage you to turn in your copies of God's Word to the first book in the New Testament, to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 17. This will be found, our reading today will be found on page 823 in your your Black Pew Bible, if you'd like to follow along in that way. I'll be beginning with verse 24. So I'd ask you to give your full attention now to the public reading of God's holy word. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's bow and pray together. Our Father, in our song, we have already issued a form of prayer. Speak, O Lord, speak as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is full of your glory. We look to you now through your word and by your spirit, to speak to your people. Give us ears to hear, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, there are few events recorded in the New Testament as supernaturally spectacular, as spiritual in the most heavenly sense of the word, or as utterly unforgettable as the bodily transfiguration of our Lord Jesus Christ, where the Shekinah glory of the Godhead was seen radiating from the human body of Jesus as he spoke to Moses and Elijah at the top of the holy mountain. Truly, if ever there was a mountaintop experience, this is it. Decades later, John the Apostle would simply say of it, We beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father. Now you may also recall that at the time of the transfiguration, Peter was there and he suggested that he and James and John build some booths, some worship shrines at the top of the mountain to to institutionalize this extraordinary experience. And I think we can all understand that at some level. But we also know that capturing such moments in order to preserve them is rather like capturing lightning in a bottle. It just can't be done. And if to prove that point... When the event of the transfiguration was over, the scriptures record that they had to come back down the mountain, back into the world. And that's what we have to do, isn't it? Monday, 
always follow Sunday. And when they came down, what did they experience, those, those disciples, those three disciples, in that awesome afterglow of such an unrepeatable event as the transfiguration? What, what was life like? What did they experience? Well, demons and taxes. Yes, demons and taxes. According to Matthew, they went right back into the thick of it. First, Jesus heals a boy with a demon. And then as they make their way back to Capernaum, to that administrative headquarters of the gospel movement, something remarkable happens that only Matthew records. As they enter the city, a group of of religious tax collectors approach Peter. No doubt they recognized Peter. This was his hometown after all. And perhaps it was thought unseemly to approach the rabbi himself to bring up a matter of, of, of overdue taxes. The fee collectors were attempting to collect from Jesus an annual tax, a, a two drachma tax for the support of the temple. It was a modest tax that had begun back, way back in the wilderness years as an assessment to support the tabernacle and its life according to the law of Moses. You can read all about that in Exodus chapter 30 if you like reading about Mosaic tax law. I can't really imagine why you would. But if that's what you want to do, Exodus 30 is the chapter where this command is given. Perhaps the fee assessors were approaching the disciples that day because the annual census, which according to the Mosaic command was the trigger for the annual tax, maybe that annual census had already happened while the disciples were away from their central town of Capernaum. And so it seems that the fee may have been past due. So the tax collectors come up to Peter, and perhaps with a hint of accusation, they say, does your teacher not pay the tax? Now, as we'll see shortly, the subject of the payment had probably never come up, but Peter is ever willing, being Peter, to defend his master from every insinuation of wrongdoing. So he simply says, yes, yes, he he pays that tax. I'm sure he pays that tax, yes, you know, that sort of thing. But then look at the rest of verse 25 with me. And when he, that's Peter, when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? Now the first thing to see here is that Jesus speaks to Peter first. Now Christ was inside the house. He hadn't heard this conversation outside, as far as we know, but he clearly knew what they had been talking about. What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? Now, my friends, this is not a hard question. If it were a category of the game show Jeopardy, it would be under tax policy for 50. Peter knew that in his day, most taxes originated with the king and that the royal family would not be expected to pay the tax, but everyone else would. So Peter gives the correct answer 
about who pays the tax from others, not from the sons, but from others, he says. And then Jesus responds by saying, well, then the sons are free. By free, he means they're free from having to pay the tax. They are exempt. The sons of the king are entirely free of that obligation. They pay no tax. Now, obviously, I hope obviously to you, this certainly applies to Jesus. He does not owe the temple tax, strictly speaking, because he is the son of the great king, the son of God. This wasn't a a title Jesus aspired to. This was his very nature. It was his eternal nature. He was in all eternity the son of the king of the universe. God himself had declared him so at his baptism in the Jordan River. And he had underlined it again at the transfiguration that had just occurred. Where again the voice of God was heard saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus was and Jesus is to this moment the Son of the King. Even as a boy, he had declared that the great temple in Jerusalem was his father's house. And then in the 12th chapter of Matthew, he declares that he himself He himself, listen to this, was greater than the temple. So, no, he doesn't owe a temple tax, strictly speaking. He is greater than the temple. He has no obligation to pay the tax. The temple is his house, his father's house, and he is the son of God. But here's the thing, and and some commentators will not say this, others will And I will. His disciples are not obligated to pay the tax either. Because they, in union with him, are the sons of God as well. Notice that Jesus uses the plural in his analogy. He says, the sons are free. And as we will see in a few minutes, Christ supernaturally provided the funds to pay the fee, not just for himself, but for Peter as well. The truth is, the temple was soon to be destroyed, as Christ had predicted. In having Christ with them, and in having the fuller outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, the disciples did not need the temple, and God would soon remove his hand of protection over that holy place, and the Romans would burn it to the ground. As Jesus himself said, it would no longer be about where you worshipped, for true worshipers the Father is seeking would worship God in spirit and in truth. The disciples were already in the kingdom of God through their faith union with Jesus. So the temple was no longer the locus of the presence of God. Christ himself is the temple. He is the location of the presence of God. He is God. So none of the sons owed the temple tax, strictly speaking, See how Jesus is identifying his followers here as the sons of God. This is their true 
and everlasting identity. Identity. That's a subject we talk a lot about these days in our culture, don't we? Self-identification especially. And there are some people who would claim to be Christians, but whose real self-identification, at least what I might say they're controlling self-identification, is not in Christ, but in their family name, or in the company they started, or in their academic titles, or in their social circles, or in their ministry, or in their political commitments, or in their race, or in their ethnicity. These are the ways that people tend to self-identify today. And in our day, unlike literally any other time in human history, many others primarily identify themselves now through their sexual desires and practices. Now the world seems to have no idea that self-identification is not the key to true identity. Let me say that again. Self-identification is not the key to true identity. Consider our text this morning. What seems to matter here in our passage is not what Peter thought of himself, but of how Christ Jesus identified him. Christ, in essence, identifies Peter as a son of God through grace. The sons are free, he says to him. This is true whether Peter feels like it or not. It's true whether he self-identifies with Jesus or not. Remember, he would deny identifying with Jesus three times, famously. But he was now unalterably by election and the work of grace in his heart, a son of God. So Jesus is the son of God by nature and by right. Peter is a son of God through grace and union with him, and so the sons together are free. Neither of them owed the tax to the temple. And yet, Jesus declares they should pay it. Look at verse 27, it's a key verse. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Yes, we are the sons of the king. Right now. And that should give us enormous benefits in this life. You should never wake up for the remainder of your earthly life and forget this fact. You belong to God through the grace of adoption. Nevertheless, here Jesus says, let us pay the tax anyway so as not to give offense. Now, the Greek word here for give offense is scandalismo, to cause a scandal. And it is most often used in the New Testament in the sense of doing something that causes another person to stumble in their faith. 
In fact, it appears in the very next chapter of Matthew where Jesus is talking about children. And he says, whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Causing anyone, most especially a child, to sin is a very, very grave matter indeed. Now, in our society's frame of reference, one's identity is all about asserting the rights and the privileges that that identity entails. Several weeks ago, I used an illustration uh, in an evening sermon about a well-heeled woman in Dundee, Scotland, who responded to being handed a gospel tract by Pastor Robert Murray McShane, and she said, Sir, you must not know who I am. She felt her identity as a prominent, wealthy person shielded her, gave her a right to be shielded from having to endure hearing about her need of a Savior. Of course, the connection between identity and rights and privileges is not always an occasion for sin. If you've paid your dues and can identify yourself as a member of the country club, you're free to use the pool or the golf course, I'm told. If you have a driver's license, you have the right to drive on these streets. If you're an American, you have a constitutional right to vote. But when Jesus had the chance to legitimately avoid attacks because of his supreme identity as God's son, he did not avoid the tax. And it was purely because of his concern for others and their spiritual development. In fact, he said they would pay, uh, they would, they would pay the tax to not give offense to them them surely being the temple tax collectors. So I want you to think of this. Here, the Son of God, who was under zero obligation to pay a dime to the temple, which he knew was on its last legs in terms of history, he, knowing all that, was willing, in fact, he insisted on paying not only the full annual tax assessment for himself, but also for Peter and to work a miracle to do so, all so that a group of tax collectors would not be unnecessarily offended. I know there are times when offenses must be given. Jesus himself made a whip of cords and overturned the merchandise marketeers in the temple regarding the Galatian church leaders who insisted that Gentiles had to be circumcised in order to join the church. The apostle Paul wrote, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Sometimes there are bright lines, aren't there? But here, Christ's love for others, including those who were not his disciples, compelled him to decline to exercise his rights. 
As one scholar has said, payment of the tax in this case is an expression of pastoral concern. Jesus is interested in something more than theoretical rights. Even if the sons of the heavenly king are free from the tax by right, they are not free from the claims of love, even love for their enemies. Are you concerned about avoiding unnecessarily offending others? I mean, I have to confess, I I don't think this aspect of discipleship comes easily to me at all. I like to argue. I was on a debate team once. I mean, I do feel my sonship in Christ deeply. I believe in my bones that I am a son of God by his glorious adoption. And that means I, I don't tend to care too much about what other people Think of me. Some people, surely, Nancy. But I have to care, don't I? Not out of personal insecurity, hopefully, but out of identification with the gospel and its advancement on earth. Out of love for other people, which also doesn't come naturally to me, by the way. What about you? Do you give a generous tip to your waiter even if they may not have entirely deserved it because they may perceive that you are a Christian and your generosity will say something about that? Do you put bumper stickers on your car that come from anger and are bound to anger others? Do you think of the witness that makes when your car turns into the parking lot at Sovereign Grace? Do you share your opinions at a family reunion in a way that divides the family unnecessarily and would lessen the chance anyone would seek you out for spiritual advice or to follow your spiritual example? You and I do have great personal freedom in Christ. For freedom, he has set us free. Yes, but it is always checked By the command to love. Paul said to the Corinthians, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So little concern for this today. We are a a culture awash in contempt. Internet trolls, hit and run, run hit and run operations, mocking others in comment sections. Grown men let sports rivalries become an obstacle in their relationships. We live in a time when people feel they even have a right to riot and burn down stores if they perceive an injustice in their community. We live in a time when people feel they have a right to riot or encourage others to riot, to subvert a lawful change of political power if they don't like the results of an election. But Paul said to the Roman congregation of Christ followers, repay no one evil for evil. 
but give fault to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Bishop J.C. Ryle, who you would probably know now, had the hard calling of being an authentic, evangelical, and reformed minister in the Anglican Church in the 19th century. So he faced this exact tension all his adult life. Ryle said that Jesus' words about not giving offense, and I'm quoting him now, teach us plainly that there are matters in which Christ's people ought to sink their own opinions and submit to requirements of which they may not thoroughly approve rather than give offense. He said we should never give up on God's rights, but we may sometimes safely give up on our own. There are occasions when it shows more grace in a Christian to submit than to resist. And Raul goes on to talk about this tension of living uh, to support church leadership and the leaders in a society at large. He says this, he says, There may be practices in the circles where our lot is cast, which to us as Christians are tiresome, useless, and unprofitable. But are they matters of principle? Do they injure our souls? Will it do any good to the calls of religion if we refuse to comply with them? If not, let us patiently submit, now quoting Jesus, so that we may not offend them. There are some things that would injure our souls to comply with today. Increasingly in our culture, this is so. I don't have to list the issues. You know what they are. But short of that, short of soul injury, let us remember the words of Paul to the congregation in Corinth, which was a congregation very intent on exercising their personal rights. When Paul wrote to them, we should put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Chapter 9, verse 12 of his first epistle. Put up with anything. But y'all, can we talk about the fish some now? That's what I really want to talk about today. You know I do. J.C. Ryle quipped, Jesus makes a fish his paymaster. And let me tell you, it's one thing to train a horse or a dog or a chimpanzee to do something, but to get cooperation out of a fish, that's really something. Seriously, this is a true first order nature miracle. It's not a mere trick like your granddad plucking a nickel from behind your ear. Christ not only commands the storms and the great seas, he is Lord of the animal realm as well. Psalm 8, 6 through 8 reads, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also beasts of the field and birds of the heavens and fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the seas, including including a particular fish in the Sea of Galilee who bit down on a silver coin of the empire worth exactly one shekel or two drachmas, the exact amount needed to pay both Jesus' personal tax as well as Peter's tax, 
The fish ingested that coin at just the right moment, and then said fish got on Peter's fishing line as well, being caught again at just the right time to pay the exact tax the sons of God did not owe, but needed for the gospel's sake to pay. You see how God will move heaven and earth or coordinate a particular fish's lunch menu to advance his kingdom. What does such a miracle mean? First, I think it reveals the glorious lordship of Christ over all things and all creatures. Doesn't something stir in you when you read in Colossians chapter 1 that all things were created through him and for him? That fish was created by Christ, And it was created for Christ. The animal's obedience is not unlike fishdom, but is actually exactly like fishdom. That fish was being true fish that day when it bit down on that flashing coin. And this covers all the animals. You know, one day, many years ago now, when I was still able to run and exercise, I was down at my parents' house, Daltal Island, Beaufort County, South Carolina, on the coastal marshes down there. And it was a brutally hot August morning, very humid. I went out running around the neighborhood to exercise. And as I finished my loop and came back towards the house, there was a a pond there right before I get to the house. And I did something foolish. The water looked so cool. So I went down to the the edge of the pond and bent down and started splashing water on my face. And as I'm down there that close to the water, two eyes begin to look back at me. It's about a six-foot alligator within 18 inches of my face. It was an interesting moment in my life. Quite, Quite primal in the fear I felt in that moment. But I believe in providence. And I believe it's not untrue to say God shut the mouth of that creature that could have done some damage. Christ's lordship over the animals and nature generally is absolute, and they do his bidding. Secondly, gracious and ample provision is made for our needs through our sonship in Christ. When we obey the commands of Jesus, he finds a way to bless us, even if he has to command a fish to pay out like a slot machine. The point is, in his providing for Peter as well as himself, we see how incredibly blessed we all are to be the sons of God. And of course, women are also, in this sense, sons of God in this fallen world. Because we all are in union with the natural son. And how obedience to him has its rewards as his father makes provision for his obedient ones as only he can. And as only they and and we know anything about. We will always have all we need to obey God. Isn't that a most encouraging and satisfying thought? Can anybody here deny that? We have all we need to obey God. Finally, I believe Christ chooses this means to pay the tax because of divine whimsy. 
That's what I said, divine whimsy. Let me ask you this. When Peter got that coin out of that fish's mouth, exactly as Christ said he would, you can imagine he must have immediately brought it back to the Lord and to the other disciples to confirm the miracle. And when he held that coin up, what do you think was the expression on his and Christ's face? I think it was some kind of dour solemnity. Surely not. Surely they both smiled. I mean, Peter had just found a coin in a fish's mouth. Divine whimsy. Jesus could have produced that coin out of thin air if he wanted to, but instead he had chosen to enact a memorable miracle using something that was right in Peter's comfort zone, fishing. He knew, Jesus knew that Peter, in all the thousands of fish he had caught as a professional fisherman in his life, had never caught one with a silver coin in its mouth before. This is an event revealing the playfulness and divine whimsy of the Creator. The same one who, the Bible says, made the great uh, leviathans, the great whales, to sport in the sea, to play in the sea, the scripture says. The one who earlier in Matthew's gospel described his ministry metaphorically as playing a flute for the people, yet they would not dance. Brothers and sisters, this is a most underappreciated aspect of being a son of God through adoption in Christ. For you see, there is such security in him, such confidence in what one teacher of mine called the slow red river of Christ's blood, that we now have the freedom to enjoy the whimsy, the playfulness of our God. His providence is certain. His sovereignty is so wonderfully complete and his fatherhood over us is so constantly tender that we don't have to be dour or overly solemn. A a, a gloomy and, and fretting Christian is a contradiction. After all, we're the favored sons of the king. So maybe in one sense, this miracle in Capernaum is rather like a grandfather who pulls a coin from behind our ear. God's grace is so sufficient and so sure that we have the luxury of laughter and play and surprise and delight. And I tell you this, his heavenly kingdom will be chock full of it. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Let us pray. Our Father, we don't know where to begin to thank you for, for giving us a true and everlasting identity as the sons of God. We thank you for this promise, this unalterable declaration that you make to all who have truly trusted in the sufficiency of Christ's love and sacrifice for us. Oh, Father, your word says there is a time to weep and there's a time to laugh. There is a time to mourn and there is a time to dance. Help us, Father, to do all this, admiring and treasuring the full humanity of Jesus our Lord. We ask for this faithfulness. In his name, amen.